Welcome to this episode of Trauma Talk. Today we're discussing eye injuries, both cosmetic and life-threatening, with Dr. Michelle Riggins. Dr. Riggins, thank you for being here. Would you go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Michelle Riggins. I'm a neuro-ophthalmologist. I did my undergraduate at Texas A&M and then uh, internal medicine internship and ophthalmology residency through Scott and Wright. Scott and White at Texas A&M after going through Texas A&M Med School. So I did my fellowship at Dean McGee Eye Institute in neuro-ophthalmology, and there are anywhere from 250 to 450 neuro-ophthalmologists practicing in the United States, depending on if it's pure neuro or other. So uh, Kansas City has some, so I'm the only one. So I see patients from southern Nebraska, eastern Colorado, northern Oklahoma. I have patients from Springfield, Missouri. What made you choose that specialty? So when I got in to med school, I I knew I liked to fix things. I didn't know if it was going to be with my brain or my hands. Uh, Being a neuro-ophthalmologist, it it seems like you can do both, try to fix things with your brain and your hands. Uh, With ophthalmology, I love the continuity of care. You develop a relationship with patients, but then you also get to be their surgeon. So you get get to know someone and be their surgeon, and there just really aren't many fields out there to do both. Would you just do a quick review of the ocular anatomy? First off, uh, 30% of the brain is dedicated to vision. So when, when we think, oh, our eyeballs are small and, and not important, apparently whoever made us thinks that they could be. So the, the eye has two compartments. Uh, the very front part of the eye is called the cornea. That's uh, after the tear film, the first thing that light has to be bent through to be focused on the very back part of the eye, which is called the retina or the macula. The two compartments are separated uh, with the iris and the lens. In front of those uh, is composed of aqueous humor, and that's important for our intraocular pressure. You know, there's always a flow and a drainage there happening. And then the back part of the eye is composed of vitreous, and that's important to ho- hopefully keep clear for visual clarity as well as help act as a tamponade against the retina to, to prevent uh, future retinal detachments. Naturally, all of that stuff changes as we age, uh, but uh, those, that's just kind of the basic anatomy. Would you speak to the optic nerve? So all that anatomy is important and focuses light, focus light to the back of the eye, and all that information gets sent to the optic nerve, and that's where all the information then gets sent to the brain. So would you talk to us about what your assessment looks like when you come into the trauma bay? First off, I get the, the history from whoever is consulting me. Uh, to get kind of a background story. Sometimes they don't know and they they just come in and there really isn't any history. And then when I first walk in, I like to just assess the overall patient and kind of see what they look like. Really focus on the vital signs of the eyes, which are going to be the vision, intraocular pressure, and pupils. I I say intraocular pressure very carefully uh, because we don't want to formally be checking that by applying pressure to the eye if, if the eyeball could be violated or open. Kind of just describe why it's important in the setting of trauma. You're, you're setting your baseline. Right, so that, that's the first thing to look at, and that gives us an overall idea of how the eye could be doing, right? If their pressure's really low, could we have an open globe further behind the eyeball and we, and we just don't know it? Could the pressure be really high and they ha- the eyeball's full of blood or there's a retrobulbar hematoma pushing on the eye, pushing it forward? And then you kind of further assess what the eyeball itself looks like as it's sitting within the orbit. Is it pushed forward? Is it sunken in? And do they have full movement of their eyes? And that is very subtle. 
uh, you look for subtle things. Uh, you first ask the patient if they have double vision and then try to assess the, the motility. Of course, all of this is after you've gotten as much history as you can, yeah. which in traumas can sometimes be quite difficult because the, the patient could be inca- incapacitated. So would you talk about how you assess interocular pressure? You've talked about uh, when not to, but what items do you use and um, how does it relate to uh, your assessment? When potential trauma to the globe itself, which is the eyeball, is is suspected, usually I, I don't directly check pressure. I'll have the patient close their eyelids and I might use very fine tactile, uh, mainly comparing that to the other eye that, that, that might not have been uh, damage. So you can feel kind of a tensile pressure with hopefully the healthy eye and kind of compare that to the, the injured eye. If both eyes are injured, then we just go off of our own experience on what a normal eyeball feels like through, through an eyelid. If globe trauma isn't suspected, uh, in the ER and portable, we do use the tonopin or something similar, which uh, again has to apply pressure to the cornea to get rebound pressure to tell us what the pressure is in the eye. And then if we formally want to do the most accurate way of checking pressure, uh, there is a technique called applination tonometry. And that is usually done uh, with a slit lamp, uh, which we typically don't have access to in emergency situations in the hospital or at the hospital bedside. Is the fluorescein dye test important to you? If so, would you describe it and its utility? The fluorescein dye test is called the Seidel test. Although it is, it can be quite subtle, so a positive test can be really negative and a negative test can be positive. So I, I find it important to me to personally do it. And what happens is you, you apply fluorescein to uh, wherever a potential laceration can be on the eye. And we talked about earlier anatomy, aqueous or vitreous can be coming out of an open wound. And that's seen as a clear river or lake going into a pool of, of yellow, which is the fluorescein. So that's an easier way for us to tell if the eye is open or not. Are there any specific characteristics of a lid laceration that require referral to a specialist? So there's actually three things that can be concerning with an eyelid laceration. Uh, number one, the eyelids are the, the first defense to the eyeball. And so if the eyelid has been violated, there is a potential risk of an open globe. And so I think most eyelid lacerations do need to be seen by an eye specialist sooner rather than later to make sure the globe's intact and there isn't any subtle injury. The second thing that might require even referral to a higher ophthalmologist rather than a comprehensive ophthalmologist, more like a plastic surgeon or oculoplastic specialist, is if the lid laceration involves the margin. The margin is the area of the eyelid that contacts the eye more superficially. And so we want to make sure that that gets sewn up just right so that it is intact, nice and smooth, and there's no notch or bump left on the eyelid that might affect tear film or future blinking. The last thing that could be of concern is if the drainage system of the eye is affected. That's called the canalicular system. There are these tubes that drain uh, medially or towards the nose uh, from the eyelids that then go and drain into uh, inside the nose. And so if those are damaged, there's special care that needs to be done, special tubes that need to be inserted uh, to help ensure proper drainage for the rest of their life. Otherwise, they could be left with significantly wet eyes or tearing eyes. And if that's not fixed in a reasonable time frame, 
it's a much more difficult job later on. So we like to do that around the time of trauma. Dr. Rickens, what other ocular emergencies do you commonly see? I get consulted a lot on retrobulbar hemorrhages, and the most common signs and symptoms uh, could be extreme pain or numbness. It's basically a compartment syndrome of the orbit. Uh, So much blood expands at a rapid pace uh, that it pushes the eye forward, and patients could go blind from the compressive nature of the blood on the actual optic nerve. So the fact that the patient is having no pain doesn't necessarily rule it out because, again, uh, the cranial nerve 5 division 1 going through the orbit can be affected, and that can make the the area numb. So the patient actually might not be complaining other than complaining of vision loss. Obviously, if the optic nerve is compressed, the the main symptom is going to be I can't see. Patient might not know that because if this is happening, they might have so much swelling around the area that they might not know what that vision or what that eyeball can see or not. This is technically, to treat this, this is technically a procedure for the um, ER and trauma team. By the time the eye doctor's called and can get there, we're talking 5, 10, 15 minutes. This hopefully should have already been taken care of prior to seeing us. Uh, the, the main encouragement I can tell ER doctors and uh, trauma surgeons and, and trauma professionals are you cannot hurt anything by trying to treat this. Anything you do to cut open the eyelid and the tissues around the eyes, we can fix later. The procedure is called a lateral canthotomy and lateral inferior cantholysis. And basically, you are cutting open the eyelid and some of the connective tissue around the eyes to give the blood more space to live in so that it's not pushing the eye forward or pushing pushing on the optic nerve and taking vision away. Again, it looks gnarly, it sounds gnarly, but it, it will not cause any permanent damage to the tissues. We can, we can fix all of that later. So that's one of the very few time-sensitive eye emergencies uh, that might need to be taken care of before the eye doctor actually gets there. Are there any common mechanisms of injuries you see that create that injury? Uh, anything with retropulsion, uh, coming towards the patient, like um, uh, so fist force. fights, yeah, blunt yeah. force, right, yeah. So the the or- orbital bones typically do what they're supposed to do, and and they're made to break. That that's their whole purpose to protect the eyeball. But sometimes as they break, some of the little blood vessels around the orbit then get sheared and bleed, and uh, again that can cause a compartment syndrome that needs to be addressed asap. We know orbital fractures are somewhat common. Are there any tips for rural providers in their management? The key with orbital fractures is is to know if a patient needs surgery and when. And uh, signs and symptoms that that might tell us that the patient could be headed down the surgery route uh, would be uh, severe restriction in how the eyes can move. Uh, That means that potentially a muscle could be entrapped. There are six extraocular muscles that attach to the eyes. And uh, with there being uh, many bones in the orbit around and fractures, sometimes those muscles can get caught up in those fractures. If that happens, the muscle can get estrangulated and permanently damaged. And then and then we're stuck with a, a bigger deal on, on how to treat the double vision later on uh, when potentially an orbital surgery could could release that muscle and hopefully prevent them from having disabling double vision. In children, 
Uh, they can get an oculocardiac reflex. I see this sometimes when I'm doing eye muscle surgery. Anytime tension is, is placed on some of the rectus muscles, it can actually cause asystole. And so sometimes uh, if, if, the, if it's a pediatric patient and they have orbital fractures and their vitals are not stable, uh, then this could be indication that they need surgery. The, the bones don't really come back together, uh, but the attachments around the eyes, there are so many uh, ligaments and connective tissue uh, that's around the eye holding the eyeball in place that a few fractures here and there around the orbit can be tolerated and likely don't need to be fixed or, or treated. Over time, some of that tissue can atrophy and cosmetically people might notice a difference and so that might be needed to be taken into uh, consideration for, for the future. Most orbital fractures we don't have to repair and we just let the, the swelling go down and and just follow the patient over time. A lot of times I'll do imaging on patients that have had no recollection of trauma, and yet we'll see an, or, an old orbital fracture there, if that, if that tells you anything. Again, those bones are meant to break, and so you could hit your head really hard on a cabinet, uh, accidentally catch your two-year-old's fist, and most of them don't need to be evaluated because symptomatically we're doing okay. So how do I typically manage most orbital fractures? We typically observe. But when we're gonna have double vision, cosmesis uh, could be a concern, or vital signs are, are unstable, that's when we want to consider urgent or emergent surgery. What's your recommendation for stabilizing an orbit injury in the field? The first thing we need to do is prevent any further damage from happening, transferring the patient uh, onto the, the gurney or taking them to the hospital. They need to make sure that both eyes are continuing to be protected and no further damage is done. The best thing we can do at that point is put a shield on the inju injured or, or damaged eye, or if there is not a shield, then you can always use the, the bottom of a, a Dixie cup or styrofoam cup, something hard that will prevent anything uh, blunt from happening. I don't recommend any gauze or anything that's gonna directly touch the skin or cornea that, cause, that can cause further excoriation or abrasion, but something that will kind of rest on the bones to, to protect the eyeball further. Are there any um, injuries or um, signs that could be seen during the assessment of the eyes that would tell a first responder or healthcare worker this patient needs to go directly to a level one trauma center? Some of the eye emergencies that can be life-threatening that I think about is orbital cellulitis. So if the area around the eye uh, looks infected or is red and inflamed, the eye can be pushed forward, limited eye movement, uh, prior history of trauma or sinus infection, and patient otherwise might look healthy and or febrile or sick, that should likely be sent to a facility that would have coverage to look at the, the orbits uh, on a radiographic standpoint and potentially go in there and intervene if there's a, an orbital and or sinus abscess. Uh, orbital cellulitis untreated, the infection can go up and into the brain and that can be life-threatening. I think any time that the eye motility is affected in a young patient, when I say young, 50 and under, that doesn't really have ischemic risk factors, including hypertension, diabetes, cholesterol problems, and sleep apnea, 
that can potentially be something life-threatening going on in the brain, specifically a pupil involving third nerve palsy. I'll describe what that is. So one, one pupil is larger than the other. The side that has the larger pupil also has a droopy eyelid, and the patient may or may not be complaining of double vision, just depending on how droopy that eyelid is, as the eyelid can get in the way, and then there's no double vision. And then the eye can't track. Pupil involving third nerve palsy, 80% of the time can be a life-threatening aneurysm. And so if, it, if we ever see anything like that, whether in the clinic or uh, through EMT and, and other services, that, that is an immediate trip to the ER because they could potentially have a life-threatening aneurysm about to rupture. Uh, we, we spoke about pupils with the uh, third nerve palsy. Uh, there's another condition that can actually cause a smaller pupil, and that's called a Horner syndrome. A Horner syndrome is when the sympathetic chain oculosympathetic chain to be specific coming from the brain gets affected. If this is painful, i.e. involving neck pain or jaw pain, there is a risk of a carotid artery dissection, and that can be life-threatening as well. I think anytime we have ophthalmoplegia or where the eye can't move, uh, that needs at least evaluated in the ER to make sure that there's nothing going on. I've seen uh, diabetics that have had mucor sinusitis, and, and other uh, conditions that, again, infections can kind of go up to the brain. So a lot of times there can be finding signs or symptoms of the eyes that alert us that something more serious is going on. Dr. Riggins, thanks for taking time to be on the show today. To our audience, if you have any questions for Dr. Riggins or myself or request for upcoming episode topics, you can email me at aaron.shutton at wesleymc.com. You can also find learning objectives for each of our episodes at wesleytraumatalk.podbean.com.